welcome to Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Selvi Ramalingam and I am your host today. We have a very special guest from Atlanta. Dr. Benjamin Lafko is an emergency medicine physician from Atlanta, Georgia. He received his doctor of medicine from the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta and completed his residency training in emergency medicine at Grady Memorial Hospital, Emory. Dr. Lefko was previously a chief medical information officer for the DCAB Regional Health System, as well as the vice chief of emergency medicine at Emory Decatur Hospital. Currently, he is the co-founder and the CEO of Viral Solutions. Uh, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I'm so thrilled to host you on our show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you wanted to be when you were a kid? Sure, sure. So my name is Ben Lefko. I'm an emergency physician in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta. I uh, did my medical school in Augusta, which is a medical college of Georgia, and my residency training uh, in Atlanta at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is a county hospital uh, affiliated with Emory University. I uh, was previously chief medical information officer and uh, associate medical director for operations uh, for the emergency department uh, at Emory Decatur Hospital um, and was chief medical information officer of the DeKalb Regional Health System uh, prior to its acquisition by Emory University or Emory Healthcare rather. And uh, so, yeah, so most of, you know, my career thus far had been focused on ED operations. I think I'm passionate about ED process, uh, throughput and flow uh, and ways that we can leverage technology to a degree or improve the technology and the workflow so that uh, patients can have a better experience. Doctors can do their job better uh, with uh, less disruptions and less um, kind of frivolous items in their way. And so we, we really were into eliminating waste in the emergency department uh, when, I was, uh, when I was running it. Uh, my partner, Ron Sanders, and I uh, is a PA, and he was the lead PA with me uh, in the emergency department. So he and I worked hand in hand on creating uh, different processes and workflows really surrounding the fast track part of the emergency department. Not a lot of people realize, but the low acuity fast track patients um, they're, they're big driver of length of stay in the emergency department, actually, just because they're patients who are very easy to get in and out of the department. They usually don't require a lot of ancillary studies or workup, uh, but they still have, they're still there and it just creates a lot of people and a lot of crowding. And so designing processes that can, um, move those patients through the department a lot faster, uh, uh, really decreases ED crowding. And we saw that, uh, it's been proved in multiple departments and definitely was proven in in our department as well when we set that up. So fast forwarding into the pandemic, uh, my partner and I had, you know, we thought we were going to set up some type of, uh, we thought we were going to set up like a concierge testing thing with schools. This was like back in April or May of 2020. And, uh, you know, we figured they're going to be coming back in person after the summer and, uh, and people would, this was before the big surge in the winter. And, and we thought, you know, people are going to need some kind of testing. So let's maybe try to get that together. And, uh, it, so that we were doing it, we did the legwork and groundwork for it and we started, you know, get, found a lab that could run samples for us. And we weren't really sure how we were going to get paid or how it would work, maybe a cash model. But, uh, then over the summer, I was supposed to go to the beach, uh, with my family and, you know, I'd still been working in the ER and, uh, and I had like a cough or something. I was like, you know, I should probably just get tested. I'd only been tested once before. And I was like, let me just get tested. Let's just make sure before we go away that everything's cool. And uh, so I was like, fine, I'll, I'll just go, you know, there's all these state run sites that were government run sites that were available. There's a lot of urgent cares. I was like, oh, cool. I'll just make an appointment and go get the test. And you look online and like all the appointments are booked like five days out, six days out. And then it's like, fine, I'll find an urgent care. And then you're talking about having to drive. I don't know if you know about 
Atlanta or Georgia geography, but you're talking about driving an hour, two hours to go find these outlying clinics that maybe have appointments. And people are telling me when I'm asking, because I started asking my friends, like, you know, I can't find an appointment. How do I get a test? And, uh, and they were like, oh, you got to drive to Ackworth, which is like an hour and 25 minutes away from here. And I was like, that's insane that I would have to drive out there to do this. And so I got kind of desperate because I was like, man, we can't pull off this trip. Like, you know, we need a win. We've been in quarantine. I'm like, we got to go. And so, uh, and so I ended up having to go to my, my buddies who worked in a different emergency department that had, they had the rapid PCR test. And, uh, and so I, I had to go to the ER actually and have them like check me in. So I, I did the unnecessary ER visit that, <laughs> that I probably have spoken so much about in the past. I had to do it myself. And, there, and I'm going to own that. There's no, so I kind of understood the problem there as a patient and seeing like, if, if I can't figure it out and I really know how to, how to navigate and maneuver the healthcare system really well, and I have a lot of connections and insider information, then certainly the, uh, you know, the, the lay person is not going to know how to get access to this. And so that's when the light bulb kind of went off in our head, in my head. And I went to my partner, I said, forget the schools, forget all of that. I said, what we need to do is no appointment drive through testing. And I said, just let people come drive up and get a test. And uh, we had a friend of ours who was doing it in the back of his urgent care that way in Maryland. And so we actually, my partner went up there to look at it because I said, you know, I think this guy's doing it. And then I was researching on how, you know, you get paid to do this, how, you know, how you can monetize uh, and stay afloat with and have a margin on, on doing this type of testing. And what I didn't realize was how much built-in demand there actually was for it. And so you know, we aim to set up a process. We said, let's do, this is just like, we boiled it down. We said, this is just fast track in the emergency department, except we don't have any, all right, I'm going to be offensive here. We don't have any nurse managers, executives, or anyone else to tell us what we can and can't do. The budget is completely on us, right? We self-funded the entire thing. And we said, we'll just create what, what the, the best fast track we could ever envision. So we'll make it as efficient as we've ever wanted to make something. And no one can tell us no. And, uh, and so that's exactly what we did. And we said, we're going to hire this type of staff. We're going to train them to do exactly this. What we know a lot from the ER is people do really, and in healthcare in general, people are really, really efficient when they have to just do a single task. When you have a lot of task switching, that's when you build in a lot of inefficiencies. And so uh, in the ER, there's a lot of task switching, right? You get a stroke, you get a heart attack, you get a toe pain, you get a broken arm, you get a kid with a cold and right. And you got to switch back and forth. You got to run, you got to walk. Right. And, uh, and cognitively that's difficult. And I think uh, it's, you, you have issues with prioritization there as far as tasks go with nursing and with doctors. Uh, and so with this, we said, look, everyone's going to come for the same thing. They're all going to come because they think they have COVID or they need a test for some reason. And all we have to do is provide an evaluation for that. And all we need to do is just make it so that we may just make it as efficient as possible to move through that process. And we said, we have to be core to our value is no appointment is that Anyone can come anytime. And I said, we already know this. Like everyone's afraid to do it because we're worried about the demand, but we do it in the ER every day. At that time, we we're doing 200 visits, 250 visits a day in a 30 bed ER. And because and we built this really efficient fast track that would siphon out 40% of the volume from the front, they would never touch a bed. And I said, these patients are never going to touch a bed. They're going to stay in their car. They're not going to feel like they're waiting, but we can move them through really fast. And so we got our tax time, like how, how, how quick people were rolling off the lot. We actually got it as efficient as every minute there was a car rolling off the lot sometimes even faster than that. And by adding the right amount of staffing, the right processes and really specializing people. So making, having your staff be trained to do just a singular task and they don't do any other tasks, but that they do those tasks really efficiently because they repeat them over and over again. 
and they don't really have to even think. They can be mindless in how they do their tasks, but it still collectively ends up being this big body of work that gets done. So it was pretty successful as it launched. I know I'm kind of long-winded here, but it was pretty successful as it launched. You know, our first day we did 100 people, which I thought was a lot, um, only to realize what was going to come in the future. Um, <laughs> we were doing about... That's remarkable. That. Yeah, you saw the opportunity and you seized it. And uh, I'm so glad you did it. And we are very thankful to have Vital Solutions here in Atlanta. And you're doing an amazing job. I think in less than a year, um, everyone in Metro Atlanta seemed to know about Vital Solutions. And um, I can see why, like it's very convenient and efficient. And I can watch for that from my own personal experiences too. Um, so you mentioned how you, uh, the Maryland uh, clinic was your experience. And um, that's how, Vital Solutions started about. Did you have an internal goal for the first year? And um, how did you envision Vital Solutions a year back? And where are you right now? Yeah, we just celebrated our one year anniversary on August 3rd. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's been quite the year. And so, you know, our initial goal when we first started, we said, let's open one. Let's see how it does. And we were going to be pumped if we did 200 patients a day. We said, you know, that would be awesome if we could get to that. That, you know, we'd probably be making decent money off of that. It would be great, high volume, right? And we didn't realize like how much demand there was out there in the community. And so things evolved as the business grew and we met a few people. I think, you know, it's a combination of luck and skill in business, right? And this was our first entrepreneurial adventure either for both of us. And so, uh, you know, we don't have any formal business training either. And, uh, you know, we met a few people at the outset that were really pivotal in, in our growth. One was John Lenz, who is a partner in a marketing, Atlanta healthcare marketing firm. And he, he came through the tent. He's, he lives in the neighborhood over, over by Oak Grove or Leafmore, near where their, our initial tent was. And, you know, he'd come by just to get a test and, uh, and he saw it and he saw the operation. And, you know, we really model ourselves after Chick-fil-A, happy employees, pay them well, they're working out on the line. There's a lot of efficiency. We got them real amped up and excited uh, to do the work, lead from the front so they, you know, they really feed off of Ron and I's enthusiasm. And we were on site every day working, right? So not just do we own it, but we work in the business and on the business, at least until this thing had legs of its own. And, um, and so meeting John Lenz was, was pivotal. He came through the tent and he, I think he recognized that there was something special about us. Um, and, uh, and he actually wanted to kind of be a part of it. Yes. As a, as a marketing person, but through, through his firm, but he actually has functioned a lot more than that for us and gave us some really great advice at the front, which he said, there's going to be a lot of people trying to do what you do, but you need to really dominate the space early and aggressively. And so that, so we then embarked on a really aggressive expansion tactic. And so we actually licensed out the model to other physicians who were interested in getting a piece of it. So we could not open five, six high volume tents at once in Atlanta, right? Ourselves. We did not have the physical bandwidth to do it. We were still trying to learn how to even start this on our own and keep it running. And it really was like running day to day at some times, like we were with supplies, with labs, with everything. Like it was almost falling apart for the first three months. But uh, we rapidly expanded by bringing in uh, two or three groups of licensees who opened up two sites each themselves. And, uh, and then we opened up two sites ourselves. And so that enabled us to really expand from one site out to about eight sites within about two months. And that really put us on the map 
It gave us from a variety of reasons, downstream effects, search engine optimization, brand recognition, uh, just being able to capture patient volume within the city itself, people having a kind of a centralized system, like uh, a place that they can get testing. They know the service they're getting. Uh, you know, it's not boutique or, or, or fragmented like a lot of the testing infrastructures were. And we're not the only ones in town to start up a tent, right? There, were, there are other physicians who, who got the same idea as us, right? We're not geniuses in that regard. But what we viewed ourselves as, it's kind of like, we want it to be like Facebook in some degrees, which is that, yes, they're not the first social network out there, right? And they're not the only social network out there, but they did social networking really, really well. And so that's what we said. Let's just do it really, really well and probably better than anyone else will and be really broad and capture a lot of people. And so that's what we did. That worked. And I'm going to I know I'm going off track here, but I just noticed um, the logo behind you. Is it the spike protein? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's inspired by the, let me see my hand will be in here. So it's that we went through a few iterations of the logo and Lens helped us finally come up with this with some graphic designers. So obviously we have the VS for viral solutions and it is supposed to look like the, um, like the spike protein uh, sticking off of it because it really, this has been, it started as geared towards COVID. I think it's, you know, and we could talk about this later, but it's, maturing into something much more than that. Uh, and so we'll probably have to re redesign our logo as things morph. You know, we never envisioned we would go as far as we did with it. And so now that, uh, you know, we are where we are, we'll, you know, we're going to have to grow as a company and as an entity as well. That's amazing. I love the logo, by the way. Thanks. And um, so many of us have like get ideas every day. And uh, you mentioned this a bit, like how you went about executing your, business idea, but then I am curious if you can exp explain it to us, because um, the hard part of starting a new business is that, you know, sometimes you don't know how to go about it. Or sometimes you get a cold feed um, and only a handful go ahead and execute it. And then, you know, sometimes it becomes successful. So when you actually started this, what, thought process did you have like you know I'm going to try it out because I mean we are all we all have very frustrating experiences but we did not go out and started viral solution <laughs> so um, if you can talk about what triggered you to go and actually do it that would be cool yeah I mean I think it's a combination of factors you know number one I've been we've been kind of looking for a good idea for a little while right and so I think in a lot of people who are more on have more of an entrepreneurial bent, you know, they'll, they'll try to, you'll try to find things to fix, right. And try to find things to create. And so I think in a lot of my career, at least, and I think there's a personality type for entrepreneurialism, but you really have to be, I think, focused on fixing things that are broken. And I think if you have a problem that you're willing to solve and you like solving problems, that's already the big step. If you're motivated, like I want to, I want to make a lot of money and sell a company, like, right. You probably should just go into finance on, you know, and, and move to New York or something. But I think if you're trying, if you like fixing problems, problems for people, problems for society, right? Problems with processes, whatever it is, then you have to have a passion for that. And it stems from that, right? So Ron and I both have a really strong passion for, for, for making a really solid process and providing a really good service. So we're really service oriented as far as our industry goes. And uh, you know, for us jumping into it, right? You know, we, we said you first you have to kind of get past the imposter syndrome. You need to be a little bit bold and say, say, look, like at least as a physician, I'm like, look, I'm a physician. I'm highly trained. I'm intelligent. I went through years of school. 
Certainly I can figure out how to do this, right? If I work hard enough and I research enough and I read enough and I talk to enough people, I can figure out how to do payroll, how to do scheduling, like what are the laws behind it? Like, you know, we just got to find either the information or find the people who have the information and you can make those decisions too. And I think you need to get past, a lot of people need to get past the imposter syndrome of, 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 oh, it needs some level of specialization to do it, or you need some kind of training or pedigree or something, or pedigree or something like that, that will enable you to be able to be successful at it. What I realized now, especially having been in a successful business and having interfaced with a lot of different business leaders is nobody really knows what they're doing, right? They're all kind of learning on the fly. Like they know their business, but anytime you embark on something new, it's always going to be a learning experience for everyone. And for this, it was great because there is no playbook. There's no playbook for how to run a drive-through tent during a pandemic when there's when every supply chain has collapsed and society is on the brink of collapse, right? Like there's, there's no playbook for that. And so you have to write the playbook yourself on it. You say, this is how it should be done. And this is how we're going to do it. And so, you know, for us, it was just a matter of being bold like that and willing to do it. Now we are relying on years of experience in managing healthcare personnel and managing healthcare processes. Right. So we are like, it's not me setting up an accounting firm, right. Or something that I know nothing about. This is, you know, us setting up basically a bunch of clinics and we already have a lot of experience in managing and running clinics. So from the operations, building, coding, healthcare side, we had a lot of experience in that. And so it's important if you don't have that experience that you bring in people who do because you need someone who knows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. And that's a great advice for all the business school students. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so you started on um, with one branch on Claremont. <clears throat> so how many can I call them branches? Do you have currently and uh, how many people are working yeah. on organizations? So we expanded at our maximum. We were at our peak back in January. As the pandemic and demand rose, we expanded more and more. And we went up to 11 sites in total at that point. Uh, and then as the pandemic eased back, volume went down. And once it dropped below a certain profitability threshold, you know, we wanted to not get anywhere lower than about a 20% margin. Um, just because when you're dealing with insurance payers, you don't actually know if you're going to get paid. So this, and we can touch on that in a minute, but like this business is predicated on, on a third party paying you. And that's really challenging because you don't know actually what you're going to get or not. And so, uh, and so with that in mind, and because of changing laws, legislation and insurers are notoriously difficult. Commercial insurers are notoriously difficult, uh, to deal with, uh, the, uh, you know, so as the pandemic winded down, we, uh, we, we scaled back and we shut sites uh, as the volumes dropped. And once they dropped below a certain number per day per site, we would, we would shut them. And so we contracted back to five sites and now we're expanding back. We're up to this week, we're opening three more outside of three local emergency departments at the children's hospitals to offload their volume. And we're, we're reopening our Dunwoody site. And, and then we're doing a bunch of telemed sites throughout the, throughout the state. So probably we'll ramp back up to nine or 10, I think. If this That's peak, incredible. Yeah. Hopefully this follows the, uh, the UK curve and reverses within the next three weeks. I mean, from a business perspective, like right, let it ride, but from a personal and societal perspective, I hope that it reverses within the next few weeks. Uh, and so, so we're kind of waiting and seeing, but we're, we'll, we'll ramp up and ramp down. That's the nice thing about this business is it has a really low overhead for starting. And so you can ramp up and down pretty quick. I'm glad you mentioned insurance. Um, I think I mentioned this to you earlier. The first time I came to one of the solution was, um, 
before my mom was boarding her flight to India, she had to get test, testing done. And I was pleasantly surprised that uh, I didn't have to pay for that. And which made me think that people who do not have the insurance can get tested for free, which I thought was amazing. Um, so can you talk about um, how that was done? And um, in, does that apply for vaccines too? Like anyone can come and get vaccines for free and uh, how it is being covered, the logistics behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, our part of our business model was we really wanted a low barrier for entry for our patients and we wanted them to, to come and get tested with us rather than somewhere else. And what we noticed in the market was a lot of, um, like a lot of the urgent cares, which were shouldering most of the burden of testing were, were charging a fee for people to come and get tested, usually like $60, $100, sometimes even more, sometimes $200 for a same day PCR. When we looked into the legislation that came out surrounding COVID-19 testing, so there was some important legislation that came out in the CARES Act, which was that initial act, uh, that initial act, the uh, relief platform that they put out when the, when the pandemic first hit. And in there, there were some insurance reforms that said that COVID testing should be free of cost for any individual. Now, that doesn't mean it's free, right? Nothing is free. Labs cost money, personnel cost money, right? Nothing is free in this regard. It's funded in some way. The state sites are funded by the states, which is ultimately federal money that has trickled down into the states as part of relief packages. But private sites like ours also need to be able to run to carry some of the community burden. And so in that situation, what the CARES Act set up was they said that anybody who's presenting for COVID testing should not have any out-of-pocket costs. Providers should seek reimbursement from commercial insurers, and there should be no co cost sharing. So co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance, uh, anything like that needs to be waived by the insurer and the provider, and there's no balance billing. So let's say I charge $300 for a test and insurance pays me $150. I don't collect that additional $150. That has to be written off, right? If I would charge for that additional balance, that would be called balance billing, and that's not allowed. They also stated that in-network versus out-of-network needs to have similar compensation. Um, and so that made it really easy to get in and start testing because I don't have to get an in-network contract with the insurer to go ahead and do it. The uninsured, the government set up a fund through HRSA, which is a federal agency that manages funds for care for the uninsured with COVID-19. It manages both, both hospitalized patients so that they can get reimbursement for the added cost of, of the prolonged stays, et cetera, with COVID-19. And also for people like us who are just doing testing so that these people have access to care, right? Because it is in the, so, it is in the social good to have everybody tested for COVID-19 when they need to be tested. And so for the uninsured or people who don't have ID or whatever, they're, or, or they're, they're not US citizens, we can build that fund for those patients. For the people who are insured, we build their insurance companies, if that makes sense. And so that's how it's no cost. I don't call it free because it's not free, right? We still are sending out a charge and a bill to an insurer for it. We're not billing the patient. So in a sense, it's free to you. If you count your insurance paying as free, then it is free in that sense. But I think it's actually a benefit that you have through your insurance. It's just covered without any type of copay. And Medicare recipients are very familiar with this because they often have no or very low copays for the healthcare they receive. But that makes it very easy and I don't have to think twice, should I go get tested or not? And encourages people to come out and get tested and that's, that's amazing. 
Um, I agree. I mean, I think it lowered the barrier to entry for, for a lot of patients. And, you know, I think, you know, in healthcare, some people, especially, you know, I don't want to comment on it, but some people can get really greedy in healthcare, right? And want to ensure that they're getting a certain amount and a certain margin. And for us, we said, and this was the risk we took when we did it. We self-funded this thing too when we started it. Ron and I put our own money up to get it started off the ground. And we were red for, we were in the red for two months until we started getting paid by the insurance companies. We weren't even sure if they would, sure if they would pay us or not, right? And I remember I have a picture of me holding up the first check from, from the first insurance payment that we got because we said, oh my God, like this is real. Like we actually <laughs> do this. We have all these charges going out and we're like, are we going to collect on them or not? So there's a big risk in there. And, and risk is, I think, in any entrepreneurial venture, the risk is going to be an inherent component of it. And you have to be comfortable with some level of it. We said, look, we may lose X amount of money on this as part of our initial investment. And we're willing to risk that because of the reward we may see from packaging up all this, packaging up all this volume. We could have probably made less, but but, but almost as much maybe if we charge cash to patients. Uh, but we said we can dominate the space and get tons of patients. If we say, look, there's no cost to you. You can just drive up and get it and leave. We're going to charge your insurer. But the biggest thing was people didn't believe us that we weren't going to charge them. That's how twisted it is, right? <laughs> that's, that's so unfortunate and sad, but uh, I'm, I'm glad it's all changing right now. Um, so how easy or challenging was it to hire the right people Again, from my personal experiences, um, they were also energetic. And uh, can you talk about the hiring process? Yeah, so in the beginning, uh, the providers were just me and Ron. So we said we will be the, the providers on site. And then we needed a bunch of medical assistants. And for that, it doesn't require licensure in Georgia to be a medical assistant per se, at least in this capacity. One of them is just doing patient registration. So that's a non-professional, non-skilled role. And the other was doing the swabbing, which was allowed through a waiver through the public health emergency that was declared. And so from a regulatory perspective, non-professionals, non-nurses, uh, non-physicians are allowed to, to perform the swab if adequately trained. And so we actually, there were known quantities at the beginning. There were people that we knew who were furloughed, a lot of them scribes, college students or grad students that were furloughed from the emergency department where we were working. And the first five people, we only had five employees at the beginning. And so we hired five people and we knew them, we knew they were hard workers and we trained them ourselves. And all of them, the original group are still with us today. They've all been promoted to managerial positions wow. within, the, within the organization. They're all making a lot more than they did at the beginning, uh, but they were bought into the vision, right? We call them our day ones. So uh, because they, they were with us from the start, they're bought into the vision and they're, they're really expert in what we do. And so a lot of it is we actually want people who are untrained a little bit because we want to mold them into the way, into the way we, we want, we want them to do. And so we believe in a lot of, a lot of it was we would do phone interviews, but we'd actually do onsite interviews. So we'd ask them to come and work for two to three hours alongside us. And then we'd see how they work. We'd see their ethic. We'd see their interactions, how they dress, how they talk, how they walk, move, do stuff, how teachable are they? And that would tell us if they're hired. So after that kind of tryout session, we would say whether or not they have a job. And we still do that now as well. We just did it with 20 people yesterday. This reminds me of Zappos case study that I was studying for business school. <laughs> you seem to have a great culture and that's quite amazing. Um, so we have to talk about Delta variant. Um, currently the numbers are pretty high. Um, in your point of view, how bad is it compared to last year? Can you share some of the stats? Regarding yeah, the yeah we're about to publish we're about to publish a paper in JAMA 
um, with some data from our sites because we have some pretty interesting and compelling data from there that'll add to the body of knowledge. But with the wild type COVID-19, which we saw at the beginning, and then the U, well, we'll call it the, is it the beta variant? Not going to say UK variant because it's offensive. Um, I don't want to offend my UK colleagues. Um, it did not necessarily even start in the UK. But, um, uh, but, uh, the, but a lot of people are familiar with it as the UK variant. And so B117 uh, variant. So we saw a kind of escalation in that. So the wild type variant, really one person would infect about two to three people. Okay. And so it was, that's decently contagious, but it's not crazy, right? It's not on the order of chicken pox. It's not on the order of measles. Uh, and it's containable at those levels. Uh, and, and so what we saw and what we saw in last winter, you know, we saw the surge kind of have a broad slope going up from November into January, February, um, when we reached kind of peak infections and then things improved. And it was able to be contained. We would even see people within their household, you know, maybe one person getting infected or two people getting infected in the household and the rest were all unvaccinated at that time, the rest remaining, you know, uninfected. And so that was the original variant. As far as what we saw in the emergency department, because Ron and I still work in the ER also, part-time, but still there, uh, you know, we saw, you know, we saw what played out. The elderly got very, very ill. Some of the younger people did, but not really. And, uh, and there was lots of death and destruction left in its wake. Things improved a lot, both probably with some seasonality and definitely with vaccination starting in January and then all the way down into the summer. Uh, I did see, actually, we saw one of our providers, one of our PAs, physician assistants, got a breakthrough infection, got infected by his daughter. And uh, he was vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. It was two months after his vaccine. And we got him sequenced and he had the B117 variant. And so he did well. He was moderately ill. He stayed home. He did have a drop in his oxygen, but not enough to be hospitalized. But he's a healthy guy, a runner. And so that when that happened, you know, we had a bit of a defeat, defeated moment. I called my partner and I was like, this is never ending, is it? And uh, then things still improved into the summer. We thought Viral Solutions was closing at that point. We said, this is probably going to be the end of the tents. We'll continue our government business in the schools, which we haven't talked about yet, our vaccination line of work. Uh, but we thought the tents were dead. And, uh, and then the Delta variant came and he... My partner had watched it really closely and he was pretty concerned about it, especially with vaccine breakthrough. And, uh, and then the thing started taking off. We noticed Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana started having pretty rapidly rising caseloads and their vaccination rates are not that different from ours in Georgia. And, and that's, that was really in mid July when we started saying, Hey, I think something's happening. And uh, we watched it for another week and we saw it spike there and we said, it's going to happen in Georgia soon. And we actually started hiring then. We put like some ads out, but not as aggressively as we probably should have. And then, uh, and then it really spiked in Georgia, as you see now, and the curve is nearly vertical. And so, uh, you know, the Delta variant is pretty serious. It's, it's reproduction coefficient. It'll, one person will infect six to eight individuals as opposed to two to three. And so it's quite quite a good deal more contagious. It doesn't seem to hospitalize more people than the original variant. It seems to hospitalize about the same, but when you roll the dice a million times, right? Like you're gonna get more hospitalizations just by sheer numbers. And the fact that it's breaking through 
it's also putting some of those people at play. Now, certainly we know this from experience and from the data is that the vaccinated are much, much safer than the, than the unvaccinated. The vaccinated, you know, maybe for every one of them who gets seriously ill or hospitalized, there may be 20 to 30 unvaccinated getting seriously ill and hospitalized. And so it's truly ripping through the unvaccinated. And we did some research at our site, just retrospective data review, that the positivity rate at our site is three, in the unvaccinated is three times that of the vaccinated. And so the, va- the unvaccinated have a 15% positivity right now at our sites and the vaccinated have a 5% positivity. Oh. So if that puts things in perspective. And even more alarming is the symptomatic unvaccinated at our sites right now have over 30% positivity rate. Oh my goodness. Which is insanely high. And so anyone who's sick and unvaccinated, I would be very concerned about being around those individuals at this time. Wow. So that's Delta, but it is ripping through the population and uh, it will run its course. I mean, I think, you know, the die is cast at this point and there's really no way to stop the spread. Even if we started doing heavy vaccinations right now, by the time we catch up in a month or two, it'll, it's going to have most of these people infected, I think, but I'm not an epidemiologist, so don't hold me to those numbers. So when do you think this fourth wave will peak and when can we expect the numbers to go down? I think there's two different scenarios here. Um, Scenario one is this wave peaks in late September, early October, and starts to go down leading into the winter. And we actually just see progressive decrease in infections. Alternatively, uh, we're going to see a peak again, late September, early October, a decrease as we head into November and then a hump and, a, and we'll go back up, but not as high into the winter, just because of the seasonal effect of more clustering indoors, more people around each other, that we likely will see a notch and an increase again, uh, leading into the winter and then a decrease as we head into spring. And then I, I'm hopeful that after that, finally, we will have enough population immunity that no, people will stop getting as seriously ill when they get COVID. I'm certain that every year we will be catching COVID like we catch the flu. And so it will become endemic and we'll have yearly COVID boosters or vaccinations um, just because of the mutation that's going to continue to happen. But as long as there's not a huge swath of the population who is not immunologically naive to the virus, then we should stop seeing the detriments on the healthcare system and the large scale risk that we're seeing right now. That's, <laughs> that seems to be a long road. Have you seen an uptick in the number of people getting vaccinated like because of this increase in the number of um, infections? Not as much as, I, as I'd hope. Um, we, did, we saw a little bump that's been sustained uh, since, uh, you know, that started about two weeks ago or so. Uh, when the Delta variant started surging, uh, but uh, it's all, maybe that was a 10% increase, so not not really big. Uh, I would I, we need to see a lot more vaccination going on. There's still at least 60%, 50% of the population in Georgia who are unvaccinated, and uh, and I think a lot of them have made up their minds, unfortunately. And so it's really clawing to get people to do it. You know, every person who presents to the site for testing. We ask if they're vaccinated and if they're unvaccinated, 
we, you know, we, we try a few different ways to proselytize to them about vaccination, but, uh, you know, we offer it to everyone. And we say, we have it right here and you're welcome to get it. As, as long as you're not sick, as long as you don't feel ill, even if you have COVID, like as long as you're not ill, we'll give you the shot. And because there were even COVID positive people in the initial studies who did well with it. So that's what we base it off of. But, uh, you know, we're trying to get as many shots in arms as possible, but it's, we're at the point where sadly we can't ask people to come to us. And so we're actually starting to go to them. And so we're starting some various community-based initiatives where we're going out to workplaces, mobile, we're going out to town halls to talk and give shots at the same time, because I think the gap between talking and doing is too great. And I think that it needs to happen in tandem that when you talk to someone and you maybe get them to say, you know, I actually would do it. You're, you know, they need to talk to a physician and get a real source uh, of, of data and of info, not Facebook and misinformation and Twitter. And so uh, once you can talk to a physician and talk to a doctor and say, look, this is the real facts from a trained professional. And are you ready to do it right now? Right. And that's what we're trying to get people off the bench with. And so I don't know how successful we'll be with that, but we're, we're definitely uh, embarking down that path. We're still hopeful for the kids. Uh, the five to 11 year old, five to 12 year old cohort. Uh, we're prepared for that. Uh, we're going to stock up on more vaccines this week because um, we think it's coming within the month, hopefully. And then I know the Biden administration just announced that they would like uh, everyone to get third dose. I don't know what data that's based on, but uh but certainly that will be a boon for vaccination as well. And it may help. I mean, it, ostensibly it would, but, I, you know, not touching on vaccine inequities across the world. Uh, you know, ostensibly it would help in the U.S. Yeah, definitely. And it will make going back to school much more easier. Um, so, yeah. Um, can you talk about some of the community outreach programs that you, you briefly mentioned about the schools and um, working with the governments? Yeah. What you have been doing? For sure. So uh, last December, we engaged in discussions with Atlanta Public Schools. The superintendent wanted to set up a tent in her school as they were going to bring students back starting after the new year. And, uh, and so the, we said, yeah, well, we can set up a tent for you, not a problem. And we said, well, what are you trying to do? She says, well, we want to make sure we're testing for COVID in schools. And I said, well, we have a better idea for you. And this wasn't something that was really being done routinely in a lot of places. But I'm a big follower of Michael Mina, who is a health science researcher out of Harvard. Uh, he's an MPH, MD, MPH, I believe. And, uh, and he's real big on rapid testing and what the effects of using rapid antigen testing are on you know, prevalence of disease in a population and doing different types of modeling uh, to, to look and see what those effects would be. And so there was at least a theoretical basis for using a test with certain amount lower, but certain sensitivity and routinely testing people uh, in a population. So what we presented to the school system was, look, we can set up this program for you. We'll have teams come out to your school and we'll test everybody who it's opt-in. So we'll test everybody who says yes. And we'll test them once a week. And if they're positive, we send them home. And if they're negative, they stay in school. And we think we can decrease infections by X amount in your school if we do it. And if we have 50% participation, we think based on this modeling, you'll have a 48% reduction in prevalence of disease. We'll have this nice graph where infections are going up and then you'll see it going down. And actually they, they bid on it and they wanted to do it. And so it was great. And we were the first school in Georgia to be doing this. Some, one of the few in the, in the country that were doing it. It's a large 56,000 person uh, school system and probably more than half of the students were still virtual for that, that semester. And so we set up 
we were doing about 7,000 tests a week in the school. And uh, we actually saw that beautiful curve. We saw the infections going up and then we saw it going down and staying down. Wow. And we actually got to a point where across the 7,000 tests per week, we only had two positives at the end of the year. Whereas at the beginning, we were seeing a lot more. Uh, that was with wild type and probably some B117 variant. Delta, we're now embarking back on that right now. And so I can talk about that separately. But so that, that's what we're doing in the school system. And it's been a great program. And now a lot of schools kind of late in the game have jumped on board with it. And so we've expanded to other smaller schools, charter schools, daycares, preschools, a few other places uh, as we can accommodate because scaling has been a really big challenge, I think for all businesses, but for us especially. And it's really a personnel and management issue. It's having people to manage the personnel and having the personnel. And so bringing them on as quickly as is demanded when they're saying we need it next week. And so we're like, all right, let's go. We want to capture the revenue, but it's, it's a lot of work to, to stand it up. So, so that's what we do in the schools. We were approached by the uh, Georgia Department of Public Health uh, to bid for uh, a vaccination program for them. They, wanted, they needed teams to go into uh, jails and prisons to vaccinate that population. So each jail is run by the county. And so, you know, they would have to talk to their local health department to do it. And it was not, uh, you know, it wasn't easy and it, was, and it really wasn't, it was too much of a, of a lift for the jails when they already had so much on the plates and they were just kind of ignoring it. And so they wanted to prevent outbreaks in the jails and they wanted to start getting vaccines in there. And so we, we got the contract for that program and that's currently in play. And we have teams that go around to all these different jails and prisons and they get vaccines regularly. And it's a nice program. There's still a lot of hesitancy in that population. Um, I think as Delta is getting worse, I think a lot of them are starting to decide, look, I'm, I'm going to take the risk, the risk, so to speak, of the vaccine and, uh, and they'll take it. Uh, but, but that's been an ongoing program that we've been doing in there. And I really, you know, we, I like working with that population. Uh, it's, you know, a marginalized population that's, you know, doesn't have access to care the same way that other people do. And I think it's important to recognize that even, you know, even people who are criminals are still able to spread disease, right? So what happens to them still still filters down to you and that there is a sense of unity among the entire population that everyone really needs to be cared for, for us to be able to get this thing under control and doing, you know, the typical social stratification that we do with people uh, really isn't going to work you know, in, in these types of circumstances. So that's what we're doing there. Well, we're partnering with um, uh, Fair Count, which is um, an organization run by Stacey Abrams' sister, Janine Abrams, uh, to work within the community uh, in Atlanta uh, to try to get more outreach and get more enmeshed, embedded in the community uh, to do really, you know, local based vaccination campaigns. And so, go, like we said, going around doing town halls in person, we're getting a lot of volunteer physicians to go out because I think all of us are passionate about this and want to see more shots in arms. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. So that, that's going to be the plan with that. Yeah, that's amazing. And I heard that it was quite bad. In, I mean, there were quite a few very bad outbreaks in prison system and it's incredible that you guys are doing it. Um, so with the schools, the school pays you? How does that work? Yeah, this is a contract directly with the school itself. And it was funded at least in part, if not in whole, through CARES Act money, through the initial CARES money that went out. Uh, now there's different funding mechanisms that are out there and I'm not certain how the school is funding or budgeting it. I think they allocated that initial money and that's running for it. But I know 
Other schools, they have access through, I think there's PrEP Act funding. And honestly, I'm not a government services expert. I kind of leave that to the, to the schools to figure out. But, uh, but there, there is additional funding that's available through the federal government programs for especially testing in schools. So how many schools are you working with, if I may ask? Um, within APS, we have 48 schools that wow. we're in. And then uh, we have a seven school charter system. And God, I got to look at the calendar because we keep adding. And I think there's like five more independent schools that we've picked up here and there. Uh, wow. And then a smattering of employers that we do either regularly or here and there. That's, I'm guessing these are all high schools because it's. No, I mean, the, the Atlanta public schools, you know, we do K through 12 testing. So. Oh, I'm for really, testing purposes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For testing purposes. Uh, we're, we're, we're testing in definitely all age groups, but. Certainly, we want to apply a lot of pressure on the elementary school age children. Okay. So you started this business at the beginning of the pandemic. And how different are the challenges you face right now compared to last year? Yeah. So, I mean, at the beginning, it was like, how do we, how do, we do this? And now it's like, how, how do we move, I think, is the, is the difference now. And so, you know, a lot of my focus is on both our strategy. I do a lot of work on business development primarily for, you know, for VS right now. Uh, on kind of navigating where we're going as an entity and, and what, what our future looks like, number one. And number two, you know, what do we, what, what pieces do we need and what players do we need in place to be successful at what we're doing? So trying to take the high level view and look at what are the different components we have in place and, and, and what are we missing and what do we need? And so, you know, I can foresee different, different gaps in us. Maybe we need more operations people. Maybe we need uh, we need more staff in this area. Maybe we're, we're foreseeing revenue shortfalls in a certain in a certain business line or service line. Maybe we need to upgrade our IT infrastructure or get a you know quote or build out for that. And so a lot of it's interfacing on a daily basis with my different service line leads and seeing you know what is getting a hold on the status because things are changing so quickly, and then and then adding resources where that needs to be. And then I think the other half is really just on business development. And I'm bringing in new business for for viral solutions. So, how do you coordinate delivery of your supplies, tests, and vaccines? Yeah, so I mean, each of them has their own supply chain and logistical infrastructure. So, for testing, uh, you know, we have weekly deliveries on site directly to our individual sites, and so like test kits for PCR are all distributed directly to the sites, actually direct from the distributor. And so that's that's easy actually. And so they just get delivered and they put them in and stock them, uh, you know, granularly on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, once a week, they do what's called kit breakdown. And so they open up all the kits, break them down. And so, because we want to, every second counts when you're doing 800 people in eight hours, right? And so the time it takes to open up a foil wrapper or a plastic wrapper to take the tube and swab out is, that adds up to hours potentially of staff time. And so we actually will do on our, on our off day, which is Sunday, we'll pay staff to come in, they listen to music and they just break down kits, right? And so they break it down for the week and have the site prepped and ready to go for the week ahead. Uh, for a vaccine, it's a much more complicated infrastructure because uh, of the cold chain that's required for, for movement of vaccines and monitoring of it. So we have two central supply hubs that we use that we keep our vaccines in. And uh, the vaccines are then distributed out to locations from there, usually every three days or so. So we have uh, on-site vaccine storage uh, 
that's really about three days worth. The reason for that is number one, if the site, we don't want it to get stolen. Uh, we feel those locations are somewhat less secure than the central supply hub. If there's, even though they have backup power supplies on all of them, if they happen to have a power outage, uh, you know, we, we could lose that we could lose product. And so we actually only allocate out about three days at a time and everything else maintains in the central supply hub. We have a central IMT inventory management tracker that, that we've created the, that we use to manage our inventory on a daily basis. We've, we've written some, you know, scripts that give us daily visibility into that. So we get daily automated reporting out of that tracker that will tell us, you know, uh, how much inventory do we have uh, in our central supply? What is our burn rate? What did we use in the prior day? And so that we can then track how much we need to distribute out. Actually, our CIO came from retail clothing. Uh, he's like our only non-medical partner in the entity, but he came from a clothing company and he was previous, his previous projects were designing algorithms for clothing distribution to different warehouses and supply chain with that. And so it actually fit really well with the vaccine distribution because he's like, oh, I know exactly how to do this. <laughs> so he's like, I can, I can whip this together for you right away. We, he's about tracking and managing and checking in, checking out all of that skewing. So all of that he, he really handled for us. And, and it was serendipitous that he was involved in that. So, so that's really how the supply chain works. We have a few dedicated logistics and supply people who are responsible for reordering. So they're a central point of contact for the different sites to, to notify that they need a resupply. And so they're supposed to notify when they're about three days out from running out and then that she can, she can then resupply them. Uh, and then she keeps track to make sure she has enough on hand to distribute out as well. That's amazing. So do you have any lab space where you do the tests or? We're not a lab at present. So uh, we don't do any uh, high complexity testing. We do uh, CLIA uh, waived testing in the schools. So uh, that's rapid <clears throat> point of care testing using the rapid test, similar to like a pregnancy test or a, or a rapid strep test, right? You're just putting a few drops on basically a piece of paper and, after, and put the swab in and let it run. So it doesn't require any advanced equipment, but we don't, we don't use any dedicated, we don't have dedicated lab space that VS owns at this time. We use reference labs to run all of our samples. So um, how do you maintain the safety standards within your network? Safety as far as like, um, you're talking about like infection control or? Yeah. Sure. Um, so we require everybody to wear you know, standard ACE level PPE, um, which is uh, airborne droplet contact precautions. Uh, when they're engaged in high risk, in, uh, in high risk exposures to patients who are potentially infected. So we consider every patient who is swabbing to be potentially infected. And so everybody who is swabbing there has to wear an N95 mask, a mask on top, a face shield, gloves. We actually don't require gowns uh, for two reasons. Number one, is they're super hot and it's 100 degrees in Atlanta and I don't want my staff to pass out. Number two, fomites, I think, you know, which is content, which is contamination or infection from surfaces was really overblown and exaggerated early in the infect, early in the pandemic. And what we understand now is that, and we know this, this is an RNA virus. It's a respiratory virus. It exists in humans. It does not exist for long periods of time or significant periods of time outside the human body. Now, certainly if somebody coughed on their hand, who had COVID, and then shook your hand. And then within a minute or two, you wiped your nose or mouth, you could contaminate yourself ostensibly. However, the area on your arm between here and here is not gonna be a high contact area for your body. 
and people are advised to still sanitize themselves. And in any event, they're not really getting a lot of contact on those regions of their body. Additionally, all of our swabbing sites, with the exception of the schools, all of our swabbing sites are outdoors, which gives a great, you know, ventilation is really the key, sunlight, wind, things that break down an RNA virus. And so thankfully we've had very, we haven't had any outbreaks that we can track to our sites themselves. We have had individuals get infected and it's always challenging to know, are they getting infected from work? Or are they getting infected from outside exposure? No one's quarantining anymore. Nothing is locked down here. So it's far more likely that they're getting infected in their personal life than they are at work wearing masks and face shields and outdoors and, you know, away from people. But it's certainly possible, but we watch that really closely. Okay. So what aspects of your job do you like the most? Yeah, I mean, I like this. It's exciting every day. You know, I'm, I'm in this seven days a week and um, it's really become a bit of an obsession. But, you know, I enjoy that, you know, you get to chart your own destiny with this. Um, you know, it was it can be tough being a physician and seeing like you just look, you go to the clinic every day and you just look in front of you, say this is it forever. Right. And and you know, there's other people making decisions that affect you. And that can always be really frustrating that, uh, you know, you, you feel like maybe a sense of powerlessness or loss of control. And, you know, to be being able to run your own thing and be in charge of your own life, destiny, how things go, you know, to me, there's a lot of value in that. And even though there's some risk in it, I think there's a lot of value in that. And so I definitely enjoy that a lot. I really enjoy the idea that there's problems that we can fix and we can do really real good for the community at the same time. And I think finding ways to do both of those, you know, it, it to us, it's, it's been lucky that we, that we found what we found because I feel good about what we do. We don't do evil, right? We don't, we don't put people over a barrel, charge them a ton for, uh, you know, you know, for what they're doing. We, we, we do things that are really affordable, but also really helpful. And so I sleep well at night, you know, doing the work that we're doing and feeling like we're still helping people. And so I think being able to put all those together has, has really been, you know, it's been a blessing. Absolutely. How do you manage your work-life balance? What do you do to escape from your day-to-day routine? Become increasingly challenging. <laughs> so I, I like to have, it's encroached more and more. And especially as an emergency physician where you have shifts and you're either on or you're off, right? There's no call. There's no pager. It never, work never really encroached into home life unless you do your notes at home, which I'm ardently opposed to. But the, uh, you know, with this, it's, it's harder because I'm working kind of all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I probably need to be better about it as well, but uh, I try to have, s- s- you know, certain times of day that, that I pencil off as, as like family time for sure. And I even put it on the calendar. It's like, you know, 5 to 7 p.m., it's family time. It's only two hours, but like, it's a crucial two hours. It's dinner, it's bath, it's bedtime with my kids. And uh, one of the benefits of having this is I'm not in the ER, you know, 12 or eight evenings a month, you know, doing work. I'm home and I can see them. And even if I have to answer a call here and there, I just hang up and then I'm back here. Right. With them. So, so that's that. Um, I've, um, I have an obsessive personality in a way. So, so I think I definitely do get too enwrapped. In, in what we're doing. And so, but definitely penciling time. I think the two big things that are sustaining is always is making sure I'm going to the gym or working out at least three times a week and making sure I'm exercising regularly, which trickles down the diet, which I think helps a lot. It trickles down to sleep, which helps a lot. I make sure my phone is off and on silent at night 
and I don't look at it. It's on the dresser flipped over like a way. So I'm not checking email. I'm not looking at stuff. And then in the evenings, I definitely pencil off that the family time that every night when I'm home, that that time is spent with them where possible. Some evenings I have to go out to go to engagements, to go to help out with something or whatever. But, and during the surge time now, you know, I talk to my wife and say like, it's expected that all hands on deck during a surge like this. Like if there's so much work that has to get done that it can't be just chilling. And so, but that's, that's basically how, how we've been balancing it. I don't, I don't think balancing it great, but I'm around. That's, yeah, balancing is overrated, but whatever works. Yeah, those are some great tips. Thank you. Um, would you mind sharing your future goals with us? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, we're going to run viral solutions as long as we're needed. And simultaneously, we're looking at other offerings in the healthcare space. We've learned a lot about drive-through medicine. And I think that there's probably more to be explored in the drive-through medical space that, uh, that we're actually actively working on. I don't want to talk too openly about it yet, uh, but we'll have a nice offering soon uh, that we think is going to be hopefully revolutionary for people, but at the very least convenient. My very best wishes that it will happen and it'll all go very well for you. And you. so finally, uh, what is your advice for business school students like us? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know a lot about business school, having never gone, but, you know, in running a business like this, I think it's important that you have, you know, I think the things that have sustained us is number one, you need to have partnership. That's probably been the biggest key to our success is that you can't do it all alone and you can't do everything. And being able to cede control of your, of your entity to a degree, uh, to be able to facilitate growth and, and, and greater value uh, is important. And so bringing in really solid partners and especially having a key partner that, you know, in our situation that you can rely on who you're on the same page with, who you vetted, who you know, and have a good working relationship with, it's key. And I think, you know, focusing on work ethic and where people's values are with that, that people who are willing to do the job, no matter how much it takes, I think is, you know, has been part and parcel to our success with this. And um, other than that, I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> don't get imposter syndrome. I think anyone can do anything if, as long as they, you know, put their mind to it and are willing to do the work. And so, it doesn't matter what your degree, knowledge, or experience is, as long as you're, you're willing to do it and you're, and you're committed to it, you know, you can see it through to the end. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, thank you so much. This has been a very wonderful um, session and um, I really enjoyed talking with you. Have a million other questions, but I know you have like so many other important things to do. Thanks for taking your time and doing this podcast. podcast awesome, thank you.